0: From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. The 25th New York Jewish Film Festival opens tonight with the U.S. premiere of Yarid Zelika's Lamb, the first Ethiopian film to be selected for the official competition at the Cannes Film Festival. The festival runs through January 26th, with premieres, retrospectives, and special events exploring the diversity of the Jewish experience around the world. In celebration of the festival we're featuring one of the highlights from the 2014 edition a master class with israeli filmmaker amos Gitai. but before that we'll go to the q a following our recent sneak preview of joy which was nominated for three golden globes this past sunday and won the best actress prize for jennifer lawrence's performance in the film lawrence plays a character loosely based off joy manjano who became an overnight sensation in the early 90s for inventing the miracle mop Following a preview screening back in December, Virginia Madsen, who plays Joy's mother, and Diane Ladd, who plays her grandmother, joined us for a Q&A to discuss the film. Let's go now to that conversation.
1: Thank you. Nice full
2: audience. That's really great. Thank you for being here. Not all my movies get that.
1: <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask a few questions, and then we have some microphones, and you'll get to ask some questions, so start thinking about that. Uh, I'm going to start with Virginia, because uh, the first thing we see in this movie is this great uh, soap opera scene um, that your character, we later find out, is watching. Um, I love the setup. I love the opening. Tell us about your character. Does your uh, Joy is a real person? I happened to cross paths with the real Joy by chance in a hot, in a hotel on Friday night here in New York. Yeah, I just
2: met her last night and her family for the first time, and apparently they call their mother Toots. <laughs> and I th- thought that my character was my character is mostly fictional, but they were very pleased that I got the essence of her. And and, and the soap operas were really sort of the key to Little Terry because. She's a woman who is really really afraid of the outside world. It's a big scary loud place and she's very uncertain to you know she wakes her daughter up, you know, to answer the door because it might be somebody scary or dangerous. And so for the soap operas, those are really powerful women and strong men and and so she you know they always know what to say and and they always get out of every jam and she doesn't really see that her daughter is one of those strong women and her own mother is one of those strong women and so it was uh, I thought that she was more of a tragic figure when I first started working with David and then I didn't really realize till we started shooting that I was Fun, that I was funny you know and and once we got more and more into the soap operas and I was an obsessed soap fan but and David knew that so he got a lot of the soap stuff from me and to have but, Susan Lucci playing oh my god I was so obsessed, I was so obsessed. <laughs> last night at the premiere I was just like a ridiculous fan and like every Instagram photo was Susan but what David didn't know was that the wonderful Diane Lane Diane Ladd was in fact in a soap so tell that
3: i'm laughing because i'm watching her watching the soaps and he's doing all the soaps and several years back quite a few i had started with bob de niro in a play off broadway and when it closed i wanted to be a good wife stay home and not travel so much and be with my child and so i decided i was offered a soap opera and i decided to take it so i did and I signed a contract for a year. And once I got in it, every, every morning you rewrite, and they found out I could write, I rewrote 25 pages. And then we had to learn them, but that wasn't all it was. The, the soap opera was called Secret Storm. <laughs> but Secret Storm originally was called The Storm Within, brought to you by x <laughs> True story, and one day the producer said, What? we got to change that. So they did. So I did it for a year, so I was really having a good time watching Virginia, watching the soaps. And sometimes it was hard for me not to crack up watching all this stuff. I sometimes felt very trapped in the soap, and I'm sure they do too sometimes. But I'll tell you one thing. People who watch soaps are really loyal. Diane Ladd got herself a 35 loyal million viewing audience that followed me from film to film. So I'm very grateful for that soap. You know, yeah.
1: Tell us a bit more about, because Joy is a real person, as I said, I crossed paths with her this weekend. And um, just to give us a little bit of context, uh, tell us a bit more about the real person uh, and how she relates to the joy we see on screen.
2: Well, David David always says that the story is about 50% true and 50% fictional, but everybody in the film really represents different aspects of her experience and some of the craziest things in the film actually were things that happened like, you know, my ex-husband and her ex-husband living in the basement, the thing in Texas, all the people trying to take the business away, you know, her father and Trudy actually sued her claiming they invented the mop and lost. She forgave over and over again. And so it's not so much a story of an entrepreneur, but a, a person who is, you know, really triumphs. And, and no matter how many times she's knocked down, she gets up over and over and over and over again in order to follow her dream, a dream that she put away for a long time because life got in the way.
1: It's interesting because it's a movie about and I referenced this in the intro, about really crazy families, but... Oh, uh, no, all, we all have crazy that's families. That's everybody, right? Um, but it's also about um, really strong women and role models. Um, and I wonder if each of you could talk about the role that uh, strong women or role models have played for you at moments in your career, or as you were trying to find your way uh, in your own career.
3: Well, I had a nun <laughs> called Sister Mary Gertrude who, when I graduated from high school at 16, said to me, remember, Diane, perseverance is what counts. And I thought that she was cussing me out or something because I didn't know what perseverance meant. (laughs) Where was this, Diane? Mississippi. My father was a a veterinarian. And I think how I got this job, actually, life is so strange. And I I love this film because it says to you, did you have a dream? Well, did you put it down? Did you lay it down somewhere? One of your dreams? Pick it up, brush it off and do it while you have breath in you and that's I think we all need to hear from one person and I had I think Virginia's mother did that for her probably but my father did it for me He was a veterinarian that traveled through five countries. I'm not country states and I saw we were middle class and he helped so many farmers and I saw children in Mississippi who, forget forget television, they didn't have a radio. And a lot of them didn't have shoes to put on their feet. And I once saw Indians cooking grass because they had nothing to eat. And I was very, very young, like six years old, and I knew something was terribly wrong in my country, and I promised God that if he would help me be a success, I would help his people. So I've done a lot of writing in that way and my father said to me, Diane, you can do any damn thing you put your mind to in this world. If God doesn't think it'll hurt you, I'll take you down. He said, but remember this the harder you work, the luckier you will get. So I have that inspiration. I think we all just need one person to talk to us, you know, to inspire us that we can do what we're supposed and to do. And that's kind
2: of, that's really what you do in this film, which is, is so personal to you. That's what you do for joy.
3: Well, David said that my character, he said, I'm not sure that she's really a human. She Maybe she was an angel that came in to be born early to wait for joy, to help her fulfill her destiny, like Clarence and It's a Wonderful Life, because she sees in joy the potential of the magic. When it all goes to hell in a handbasket and they're all putting her down, saying, Oh, it didn't work when it doesn't work that first time and Joy's crushed, the grandmother says, They're going to give her a second chance. And they're like, ah, And she says, They are going to give her a second chance. She knows that. She sees, she knows. She sees what's in her. And the thing that was funny that I was just going to say, how I got this job. <laughs> is that I met David at a party. A Colleen Camp, a good friend, had given him a party for the fighter. And I went into the party and she introduced me to him and he said, where are you from, Diane? And I said, Mississippi. (laughs) And he said, Mississippi, hmm. I said, do you know how to spell Mississippi? (laughs) He said, of course I can spell Mississippi. I said, let me see. He said, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-B-B-I. I -I -I -I." I said, "Mm -mm. mm-mm, mm-mm. He said, "What do you mean? How do you spell Mississippi?" And I said, in my crooked letter, crooked letter I, crooked letter, crooked letter I, humpback, hump humpback hump back, back, I." I. <laughs> and he went all over the party doing that all night. Because he constantly makes her tell that over <laughs> and, <laughs> and over and over. again. And then later, Virginia and I, we had to improvise on the telephone. Oh, we God, weren't sure so what weird. part we
2: were up for. Well, I
3: was in—I was in New York you auditioning. You were in New York auditioning. Was, I
2: think my third audition. And I was in a hotel room, like, doing improv and doing some stuff with Jen and improving with David, and he was doing this whole weird Meisner thing with me. And, you know, I was just going with it because I was like, whatever he wants. And then he was like, okay, I'm going to put you on the phone with uh, the woman who's going to play your mother, and I, and I want you to tell your mother um, that you, you were afraid to go out. Now, mind you, we, didn't ha- not, we did not have a script.
3: There was no script for us.
2: He would not give us a script. That's right. So he said, you're just like this woman, Bellini. you're really afraid to go out of the house, and, and your mother wants you to take the kid, and he's telling her on the phone, uh, you want to convince your daughter that to take the kids to the park. And Virginia, you, you don't want to take the kids to the park because you're too afraid to go out of the house. So I'm like, okay.
3: Now, so, while, he, well, while he's telling her that, in the meantime, I've been contacted a week before Christmas, a year ago, and they said, Diane, David wants you to come to New York for a week and spend the week with Bob De Niro and him because maybe you're going to play his wife in the movie. Now, I, think, I, I don't know what part he was talking about unless he was talking about Isabella's role, which she's so much writer for that part than I am. So I didn't know what was going on, but I packed my suitcase and got ready. And so meanwhile, <laughs> you're going to screenings. And so I live by Santa Barbara in California. It's a two-hour drive there and then back and so if I went to a screening, it, it's seven days before Christmas. I've got because my suitcase. Because might ask
2: you all of a sudden to go. Yeah. Like so, now. I
3: want you now. So I got and my they'll suitcase. they'll
2: say no next Tuesday or no.
3: That's right. So I'm tipping everybody, here, I'm going to give you 20 bucks. Will you watch my car? Because there's a suitcase in it. I spent $200. <laughs> and so... But anyway, I didn't go. go. But then so he calls back. The phone. They said no, it's okay. It's Christmas. He doesn't want to take you away from your family. So then, right after Christmas, a couple of days, he calls and says he needs to talk to you today at five o'clock. Right now. Right now, he said. Oh no, wait, wait, well, he's delayed. Hold on. And and what I had to do on the first time, he he does, um, what do you call it when you put your Facetime on the thing? He said David wants to see. you, I said Facetime. My God, Facetime makes you look horrendous. So I set the scene with the lights and propped up the phone on the <laughs> piano and did the whole thing. And so we had one FaceTime that was great. Now he says, I want to talk to you about I do it all again, and I'm waiting for the call. Five, there's no, it'll be 5.30. No, now it'll be 6. Oh, he's busy right now. It'll be 6.30. Then it'll be 7. I'm so sorry, but it's going to have to be at 8. So I go over to the office, and it's terrible lighting, terrible everything. And the phone rings at 7.30, not 8. And he says, Diane, this is David. I need for you to do an improvisation. Okay, now here you are. You're going to talk to Virginia. I thought, Virginia, who? What kind of improvisation? What part am I talking to him for? And it said, okay, Virginia, talk to Diane. I was like, a, a mama? Yeah. What, honey? What, honey? i
2: just, I I, I... I, I don't want, can you take the kids to the park? I, oh, I, I, can anytime, to- I, I can take them any time, darling. I can take them to park. I, I What's I wrong, go, honey? I can't go out of the house, mom.
3: You can't go out of the house. I'm too
2: afraid, I'm too afraid. You're too
3: afraid, sweetheart. And so then,
2: in the meantime, Open now that door I'm out. in this hotel room. Now, David, now Jennifer's sitting here, so he takes Jennifer and they go into the bathroom and shut the door and he's going, keep going, keep going. And so now I'm just like talking to Diane Ladd on the phone like for
3: like 10 minutes. I think didn't Alone. he put Jen yesterday on one of the interviews, you know, and Jen said Jen, that he put well, her well, on he the phone, her phone with, with me.
2: And said you're six years I old. I thought so Jen I'm who? But then he I comes didn't... back in after ten minutes, and I'm like, and so he goes, give me the phone. He's like, okay, thank you, thank you, Diane. I have great respect. I have great respect and love for you, and
3: I'll and I'll talk to you soon.
2: <laughs> and so I was like, so the oh,
3: the model is
2: cool, is <laughs> it? It's just
3: whatever it is in life, go with it. Whoa. Sorry, that was a long because, story. Okay, Sorry, God, <laughs> it's in your hands. Okay, but we're laughing because they talk about different things. That when we all got together, Virginia and I and uh, Isabella had never worked with David before, but Bradley, of course, and Jennifer, of course, and who's a great actress—they're all great actors and actresses—and they, uh, Bobby, had all worked with him. So Bobby said, "Just take it slow. He's a little different from." Like David Lynch or Martin Scorsese. Just go slow <laughs> with him. So we did, or we did not, or we did, Virginia.
1: Um, we're going to go to the audience, but role models. I, I asked Diane the question. You didn't get to answer. Role models in your oh,
2: life. Oh, certainly my mother and my you know female role models, my mother and my older sister. with was very strong women and a great support system for me and, yeah. and uh, taught me everything I know.
1: Uh, Let's see what the audience wants to know. Uh, We do have microphones, and Jason has one of them there. Who has a question? Raise your hand. Where am I looking? Be brave.
3: Come on, come on.
1: I know somebody has a question. It's just a matter of getting the first one out there. Anybody? Uh, Right in front of Jason. Perfect place. Um,
3: You don't want to know what the weather was like in Boston? You want to know what David was like? You don't want to know what Jennifer's like?
0: Slow down. Uh... (laughs) Okay. Um, I actually want to know something about you. Wait, where are you? you? Both of
4: you. I'm right here. Both of you have worked with a number of directors on a number of different projects. Big numbers. And
5: I want to know how David Russell is to work with. You've described him in this little vignette as being somewhat difficult. You also said you had to go slowly. What does all that mean?
2: No, I wouldn't say difficult. The experience can be difficult. Um, I wouldn't describe him as difficult. I would would describe David, like for instance, Jennifer says that you are the paint, he is the paintbrush and the canvas. I would describe him as kind of a you know, we'd, sometimes we say he's like a mad scientist. He's a genius. And, but he's also like a conductor. Yeah. And he is a conductor, and we are all, everyone on the cast and crew is like the whole orchestra, every section. And he's conducting people, and he gets more and more and more passionate as, as the piece goes on. And he has the music in front of him. And if you do it right, we make beautiful music. If we really did it right on this film, he wants us to create a symphony. And he cares very deeply. He sets the bar very high. So yes, he's very demanding because he wants you to be at your best. And it is the hardest job I've ever done. Well but I, I he just created say the I best work that it is he that is I've ever done.
3: Not mm. difficult. Mm but he's different, each person is different, and that's why it's nice to work sometimes with directors that you have worked with before. When you first start off, it's like a relationship. You have to understand his rhythm or how he works, and I was doing a scene, in a scene, and I suddenly feel something odd, and I turn around, there's David. I what's he doing in my scene? <laughs> right why, why is he, he's right here. Why is he in our scene? And he, or he's like he, right there gets, under the chair that I'm sitting in, and I'm like... He gets so passionate. He gets so passionate and so inspired, and he wants so much, and he is a genius. He really is. He is a genius. And I'll tell you something. It takes a little while to connect, and then once you connect, for me, and I think Virginia would say the same thing, that once he gets into your heart, he's there forever and a day. Yeah, We, we love him. And um, it was an incredible experience to be part because of this. Because I film think
2: with him. you know, there's here's what separates the genius from sort of like the difficult, you know, crazy directors that sometimes we hear stories about. Because there's nothing dark about David. There's nothing abusive about what he's doing. He's not a narcissist. He's just extremely, extremely focused and has this very specific method, which now he's really got down. He really knows how to get in there with the actors. And so you just go with it, and you you end up trusting him
3: implicitly. And he writes part of the script as he goes. And you don't know, sometimes the scenes, it's like when Toussaint the plumber appeared. We didn't know there was a plumber. We, well, Jen and I are going, what He plumber? never told me there what was a plumber? plumber until he arrived.
2: Yeah, <laughs> you know? And then, then because he thought, well, Terry you know, lives in these soap operas. Well, she's got to have a soap opera come into her world. And, you know, very frightening to have a man, you know. And then it's the first man who was ever really nice to her. And then it's romantic and you know, so that was a wonderful surprise.
3: It was a great opportunity. I was, I was, I could not believe that David, uh, a couple stars, names were given to me, they shall not be mentioned, who he auditioned for our roles. And I couldn't believe it, that these great stars that he had auditioned, I don't wanna say who they were, but he's very detailed and specific and very choosy about who he uses. And he's that way when he works every day. He comes dressed in a beautiful suit every day to work, like a new experience greeting you, and he gives his all. He gives uh, 150% to the film. And you use, he allows you uh, as per other directors like David Lynch or Scorsese to use a lot of yourself. And that's that's, uh, to me a great sign of a great director.
1: Okay, let's take and then we'll come up front
0: good evening uh, I have a question for you how does it feel to work on a, on a project with the Jennifer Lawrence and she seems a very strong actress and uh, in fact most of her roles the majority are about a very strong and solid woman um, is, it, is she the same in the, in the life and uh, as a professional as a colleague how does it feel to work next to her
3: well she's a great actress and she's a true professional, and she's an inspiration to the other actors coming up. I look around as an actress at the next generation, and I think, where, where is the next Marlon Brando? Where is the next Betty Davis? And I do, if I do a television work, I get very disappointed sometime in my fellow young actors that they're pretending. They don't know the work. Uh, they are trying to all play camera angles instead of the work. And Jennifer, yeah, she knows the work. She's, she the work. she's yeah, And she's, she's a pro really, and she's, she's there on time. She's there on time. And also
2: it's a hell of a thing to carry a picture on your shoulders and to carry a picture of this size. And she...
3: Does it. She does it. And she's down to earth She does it with it.
2: grace and dignity. And yet, you know, she, you know, because I, one of the things I love about getting to the point in, in my career where I am, being older now, that I love to mentor my young actors that I work with. And, and I was like, oh man, she doesn't even need my advice. fine. <laughs> fine. No, really, because she already knew, man. She knew what she was doing at such a young age. And she still is very funny. And it could be very long hours. It was terrible, terrible blizzards in Boston and very long hours, as you can imagine. And people can be very tired and down, and 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 she just she works
3: like a dog. Yeah, she, she just,
2: just gets, gets everybody going and keeps everybody happy. Wanted to know if I wanted tea, and
0: she's very like, down yeah, to she's earth. She's a woman
2: of power, and 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 rare at her age to really understand and know how to use her own personal. I power. think Jennifer Lawrence is of one her. of
3: those actors that was consummated as an actor and given birth to become a better one. That's very sexy to me. I truly feel that. (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, it depends on what your beliefs are in life, but I think this is a girl who's done this before and knows exactly what she's doing. And it was a privilege to work with her for all of us. Um, She doesn't get caught in glamour and illusion. I'll tell you that, which is pretty nice.
1: Uh, let's go up here to the front row
6: yeah Um, I just wanted to hear um, do you think David was more going to uh, try and convey uh, the concept of the American dream or like a strong independent female figure
2: and kind of take a feminist stance well I think all of the above I you know we've been doing some Q&A's with Mm -hmm. uh, the actor who uh, Edgar Ramirez who plays her ex-husband who remains her friend and Edgar it, you know not his character but himself in real life he describes himself as a true feminist because this was a you know story of a man who was man enough to hold her dream up and to support her after their you know traditional marriage relationship was over and that's true of her real life so i would say all of the above both her experience as a woman and also the american dream
3: And I think God forced us to bond because we went to Boston to shoot and it was 11 degrees below zero and nine feet of snow. And for three days, the trucks couldn't even get to us. So Edgar and I bonded, he was singing and we were talking about, well how does does your mother-in-law feel about you singing? And it was decided then, all of this time helped us. It really helped us get together and know each other. Some of us did know, I knew Isabella, I had history with Isabella, with Bobby, with Virginia. We'd worked together. But this getting into the part, being trapped with snow outside, I think um, sometimes your adversary can be your best friend. Which is
2: kind of a good analogy for the film because as much as the weather was very difficult and difficult on production, it allowed us to bond when we're snowed in in the hotel and all the streets are closed and a state of emergency is declared. And it's also the same with the story of Joy herself, is as much as you know. Mimi is, is the backbone of the family and Mimi is the one person who helps her, but her adversaries and even her own mother teach her to be a strong, independent person you know, through that adversity. Because of
3: the weakness of the mother, she has to become strong. I also met Joy last night for the first time. And her two daughters, Christy and Jackie, and there's a son named Robert, they came up and grabbed me and started crying and saying, you are our grandmother. And then I talked to Joy, and I asked her, and she really went through, like that thing in Texas with that guy, wondering if he was going to kill her or what was going to happen. She did that. She, She used that strength. She was desperate, and she forced herself to take that step. And that's all real. It's, it's, you know, it's a movie, but it's based on a true foundation. She literally went through hell to get to heaven, and as an example for all of us. And what's a better movie at Christmas time than joy at Christmas?
1: Virginia and Diane, congratulations, and thank you for spending time with us tonight at the Film Society. Thank you very thank much. Thank you for
6: having thank us. Thank you so much. Thank God bless everyone. and Merry Christmas. Hi there, this is Allison Goldberg from the Film Society's fundraising team. The Walter Reed Theatre is turning 25 next year. Built in 1991 as a year-round home for film at Lincoln Center, the Walter Reed recently won the Village Voice Award for Best Movie Theater in New York. Manola Dargis of the New York Times agrees, calling it one of the finest movie-watching rooms in the city. In honor of the theater's birthday, we're planning some long-overdue renovations that will make this great theatre even better, including a new screen, 4K and 16 millimeter projectors, updated lighting and sound systems, and much more. But to make this all possible, we need your help. Naming a seat in the Walter Reed will help us accomplish these goals and lets you or a loved one become a permanent part of the theater's rich history. For more information about seat naming opportunities and the renovation project, visit filmlink.org/wrt25.
0: Amos Gitai is one of the most respected filmmakers on the international festival circuit. He joined us back in 2014 for the premiere of his film, Anna Arabia, which was shot as one unbroken 81-minute take. During his visit, he joined Richard Pena on stage in our amphitheater to deliver a masterclass, which covered the full span of his four-decade career, making documentary and narrative features, as well as books, exhibitions, and theater pieces. The renowned Israeli filmmaker will join us once again, for this year's New York Jewish Film Festival, during which he will present the US premiere of his latest, Rabin, The Last Day, an intense investigation into the 1995 murder of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, who was shot down at the end of a huge political rally in Tel Aviv by a 25-year-old student. He will also answer questions following a retrospective screening of his 2006 documentary, News From House, News From Home. This year's festival continues the tradition of the master class, with a free in-depth discussion with filmmaker Alan Berliner on January 24th. Check out nyjff.org for more information. But for now, here's Richard Pena in conversation with Amos Gitai in 2014.
4: Thank you. Ah, pleasure to be back here in uh, the Eleanor Bunin-Monroe Film Center and to be part of the Jewish Film Festival. Viva, thank you so much for inviting me and always a pleasure to be with Amos in any place. Um, don't get too comfortable because we'd be getting up soon. I, I thought that we'd begin because when people speak about Anna Arabia, and they speak about it quite often and quite fondly nowadays, that it's being shown here, one of the first things that people talk about is that, of course, it's a one-shot film. It's a a film that lasts about 80 minutes and takes place in one very long shot. And indeed, I think one of the ways that I've often thought of uh, Ms. As a s as a filmmaker who truly does explore that aspect of cinema, the long take, uh, the traveling uh, of a filmmaker who really in the 30 or so years that I've been following his work has really explored almost the metaphysics of that particular aspect of cinema so I thought I would begin with showing you what I guess I personally consider you know almost for me the, the beginning of, of this particular side of his work, uh, which is a film called Field Diary which I I had the pleasure of presenting uh, again at the New York Film Festival uh, in 2012. Just a couple of sequences from that, and then maybe we can begin our conversation. So just these are two moments from uh, Amos Gitai, 1983 film called Field Diary. The shots for me, kind of both, which are the first and last shots of the film, kind of almost establish a signature style in a way, the kind of long take, the traveling, the distance. one of the things that struck me so much when I saw the film was it seems so rare in a documentary to have such a pronounced visual style, such a sense of a, a visual format for a documentary. Can you talk a little bit about what you were doing and the plan that you came to the film with?
5: Um, no, I, I think, uh, Richard, we, we have talked about it in the past that uh, obviously cinema uh, is a special relation between content, or thematics, or politics, and form. So when I see films who are only uh, politics, and uh, even if, they, if I agree with what they want to say, but they neglect the form, for me they are not really cinema, even if I agree with what they say politically. And I see quite a lot of them. And when I see pe- uh, films who are only form, but are uh, empty of content, They don't want to say anything, they're just a formal exercise. I think we are wasting an opportunity to say something, which is precious. Um, So when I was uh, setting to do Field Diary, we're talking about um, early 1982. So now, um, you showed it in uh, 2012, it was uh, 30 years, now we're 32 years. so um I I was looking at the fact that the occupation by Israel of the Palestinian territory um uh, there is a kind of a banality there is a kind of a daily situation and if I will make a film is to install the daily aspect of this occupation um and so uh, when I translated this question to cinema I said I will install big temporal blocks, like these ones that you show, that we see uh, fragments without the voiceover. what it is uh, to have Israel as an occupying force of a Palestinian area. And so uh, the film goes uh, from one place to another. Uh, the procedure of shooting it, uh, essentially most of the camera work was done by a camera woman in Uritaviv. We we actually were starting in Tel Aviv, then we would go to Nablus. From Nablus, we'll go uh, south to Jerusalem via Ramallah and so on. And we were looking for these kind of very banal situations. So uh, you know, three soldiers on a sitting in Ramallah bus station. Um, Installed, they kind of planted there. Uh, what is what is their relations to also to the role of the camera? I mean, uh, the, the cameraman become a kind of a nuisance. You know, the camera crew. Uh, th- these little fragments, little by little, uh, tell us something about the day, the day-to-day occupation. You actually chose two fragments which are relatively peaceful, and there are much more dramatic uh, scenes in the film. <laughs>
4: So really, in a sense, it was about both space and movement within that space that you were looking at. And in terms of the uh, idea of kind of keeping the distance that we get here, that was something that from the beginning, you wanted to keep the sort of distance between you and them, as you said, there are more dramatic sequences where you kind of confront people at a closer level,
5: yeah yeah, and also you know I wanted i think especially the second shot, which is yeah. the last shot of the film, reinstalls because after you go to a very dramatic there is in the middle of the film uh, the the invasion of Lebanon in nineteen eighty two by israel when I went to Beirut and filmed it and and some other very dramatic scenes, but uh, The last scene installs back the two two important issues. One is that I'm here today having the pleasure to talk to you. So meaning I was not shot by the soldiers. So this is to, to, let's say, to their advantage. So I could stretch maybe the liberty of uh, recording it without being shot. Maybe if I would do a similar exercise in the Pinochet, Chile, I would not have the pleasure to be here today. And uh, so this is one thing. And the other thing, it is that uh, more and more uh, Israel felt exposed by the media and uneasy about it. So I think that this wants to install this kind of equilibrium, you know.
4: What kind of films were you looking at at that time that you were drawing sustenance from? Who were some of the filmmakers whose work was perhaps was inspiring you around this time?
5: You you know, I I told you, I, I, I never went to a film school. I only studied architecture and I didn't even attend one hour of a film school. So I felt that I'm, I was safe from too many references. And in a way I cultivated my ignorance, you know, up to a certain point. I, I didn't want to be... Uh, some of my critique today is that uh, we're, we're in a stage that too many things are recycled. So it kills the uh, innovative... Uh, uh, desire of young filmmakers. They they basically recycle existing forms and cliches and and so on, as if there was some sort of orthodoxy in cinema. So I, I was not. And the other thing that I say it and uh, sometimes people, especially in France, don't take it well. I said that I was never a cinephile. I'm not a cinephile. I like filmmaker. I like in a, in a way I like filmmakers more than films. So if I find somebody that I can relate to, I would follow him or her. Let's say, if uh, Abbas Kirastami tells me something about Iran, I am interested, even if he will do a very minimalist piece or a kind of more mellow piece, I will follow him. If Rossellini will tell me something about post-war Italy, I'm interested if he does a documentary or a fiction or whatever. So... Um, I. Frankly, I didn't have so much uh, references. The, the film that maybe of mine, that this is more, most related, is a film which is hardly shown. It's called American Mythologies, that I shot in this country when I was doing my studies, my PhD in Berkeley. And I shot it on the American uh, highways. And then I started to get the desire to have a sequence shot. And then, basically, I showed some segment to nuri Aviv and that set the, the idea of doing long sequence shots. Mm-hmm.
4: How would you work with Nurit and your camera people at this time? What kind of conversations would you have to set up these sequences?
5: I mean, Nurit is a very intelligent individual, so it was, uh, was a pleasure. We immediately connected and well. And, uh, and uh, I think she, she could relate to, the, to what I was doing. And in a way, she even... Um, Later, helped me to to find the the production in France to finish the film, because uh, obviously this film made my dear uh, uh, countrymen not very happy with it, and so I couldn't do more work in Israel at that time. And uh, Nurid found me this nice producer, Richard Copans. Uh, I arrived; it was summer. Like a good Frenchman, he said you know, with all respect to cinema, I'm, I'm doing my vacances, you know? <laughs> so I just send you by post the bon command, the, the right to depose your negative in the lab, do what you have to do, and we'll speak when the vacances will be over. You know? And uh, so uh, that's the way the, the film uh, uh, managed to exist. You know?
4: So after that you began working in France?
5: After that, you know, I was invited by Serge Danet to do a little series in the uh, uh We had, our daughter was a few months old, and I was supposed to stay one month,
4: and this uh, one month lasted seven years, you know. For your first fiction film, you chose The Book of Esther to make a film about that. Tell us a little bit about that choice and set it up for us.
5: So, uh, after doing a number of documentaries, uh, Field Diary, House, and... And
4: Pineapple. And Pineapple. <laughs>
5: um, I decided to start to do fiction. We're talking about 1985. And um, I w- didn't want to make a naturalistic film. Uh, because I wanted to install a metaphor. And uh, since my mother was a secular person, but was a teacher of Bible in school, uh, talked to me a lot about biblical texts and her love to the beauty of the Old Testament. Uh, I looked, uh, I was looking for a a parable which I can find in biblical text and I finally uh, decided to take the text of the book of Esther. The book of Esther is a very interesting text because it is actually the only book in the Old Testament that God is not mentioned. And it's happening completely in the diaspora. It's happening in Persia. Outside
4: of the Holy Land.
5: Yeah, in Persia, in uh, Iran of today. And so the um, biblical writer uh, managed to, uh, like always in the Old Testament, in- introduce contradictions. You know, It's really about cycle of people who are v- very persecuted that at the end uh, become persecutors of others. And the beauty of the Biblical text is that it doesn't eliminate the contradictions. The, the chief editor of the Bible was much more merciful than a lot of readers these days. And uh, he or she thought that it is important to keep contradictions for the record. And it is important to criticize power. And maybe that's the greatest heritage of this text. Now people cling a lot to the religious meaning, but there is a great, I would say, political, uh, via a kind of a poetic uh, vehicle. So I thought this is great. Uh, My friends were sure that after doing Field Diary, I will do a film about the love between a Palestinian woman, an Israeli boy, and and this kind of uh, stuff. But I wanted actually to, to install this uh, parable. And, and for to do it, I got this great French uh, director of photography, Henri Alcane, because I felt that I need to learn about the uh, cinema. Uh, Henri Alcane was by that point uh, maybe the most celebrated uh, cinematographer, maybe of Europe even. He did uh, with Cocteau, uh, La Belle et la Bête, The Beauty and the Beast, He worked on Les Enfants de Paradis. He did a great, great masterpiece. And so, uh, one of my assistants uh, said to me, um, why don't you write him a letter and uh, propose to him to shoot your your next film. It was her idea really. I, I was a bit shy to do it, but finally I sent a letter and I sent him the screenplay, which is really basically the biblical text he, he was a great guy, he, he answered me. Uh, he said, je, "Je m'intéresse." I think it's interesting, you know. <laughs> and I came to see him. Uh, he was already 78. At this point he worked with Chaplin, with Abel Gantz, with the great masters. I, I'm speaking about him because I had to learn to do uh, feature. And I think he one, was one of my teachers. I hired basically my teacher, you know. Uh, so uh, I came to see him in Boulogne next to Paris. And uh, he told me, I think it's interesting. I've never been in Israel, but I will come with you. But I have one request and I said, what is it? He said, uh, and he was 78, he said, I would like my uh, 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 electrician to come. So he said, of course. He, has, he said, yes, but he's 82. <laughs> <laughs> so I had these two great masters of uh, French cinema sitting on the set in Haifa. And uh, Al-Khan was both a wonderful uh, cinematographer and also a lovely human being. And in the breaks, I could learn uh, about a lot of things that he was doing. So. In a way, Richard, again, you showed uh, a, a scene which is the last one. It's shot in natural light, but the, the entire film is done of layers of light and uh, a very interesting composition of like a tableau vivant. Uh, when finally the film was finished, and it's the first film uh, after House. House was the first film I showed in Cannes in 82, and Esther was the was shown in the Semaine de la Critique in Cannes. And uh, after I, I I did one showing in the Tel Aviv Museum, and uh, it uh, was quite uh, packed. But luckily, I brought with me the Bible because uh, because people told me, "How come? What the, the, uh, did you invent at the end of the film?" And uh, not this one, but the the scene before it, uh, which is really about vengeance, because at the end of the story. Which I suppose you know, so I will not uh, repeat you, do you know the story of Esther most of you yeah so so uh, after the Jews are being saved by the by a very smart uh, scheme of Mordechai and Esther and so on, uh, they ask uh, for vengeance and uh, so they uh, the the king of Persia, accept to hang the sons of uh, haman. The evil man, and then uh, he asked them, "Is it enough?" He say, "We want the same, the same day again and again, uh, briefly, roughly." So in Tel Aviv, the the public said, uh, "But how come uh, Amos Gita you again you?" So I, I had the Bible, you know, <laughs> and I said, "This is the text, you know. I didn't I didn't touch it, you know." Uh, so the the whole thing was was interesting, and also again was very interesting formally. to to put a film which goes away from the naturalistic uh, cinema, which is actually, in a way, now it's really all over the place. I think we have very little uh, refuge from that.
4: What was it like for you to begin working with actors? And talk about your choice of actors here. You did a lot of almost counterintuitive casting in this film.
5: I mean, the truth is that at this stage of my work, because this is called, now they call it uh, the Trilogy of Exile. It includes Esther and the Golem, the Golem projects that maybe one day we'll show in New York. In the Golem, I went further, I casted directors. So I casted uh, Bernardo Bertolucci and uh, Philippe Garel and Marceline Loridan and and, uh, Pina Bausch helped me to do some of the choreography. So I was really into Again, in, in Samuel Fuller, who did a very big uh, role, and Hannah Shigula, and so on. So I, I was—it's kind of workshops that I was due to teach myself, you know. And um, at this stage, including the Golem, I think I'm not so interested in actors, frankly. So I'm interested in in positioning text in landscapes, you know, uh, through the, through actors. I think that I, later on, when I started the, when I came back to Israel in the early 90s, and I did uh, the films like Kadosh, uh, Yom Yom, K- Kippur, etc., I started to, to be interested in actors. Here I casted um, uh, Muhammad Bakri as uh, Mordechai, and uh, the editorial of Idiot Achronot uh, was uh, very critical. There was a guy, Herzl Rosenblum, he wrote said, what else will he do to us after casting uh, <laughs> Bakri as Mordechai? And uh, Giuliano Mayer as uh, Haman, Giuliano Mayer who was killed uh, uh, two years ago by, by probably a jihadist in uh, refugee camps. And, um, and Simona Bignamini who played uh, Esther. So it was mo- more a type casting kind of uh, procedure.
4: else to talk about with Esther, when I was talking before about Field Diary, I was talking about how that film seemed to open up for you this idea of space and movement, but I think this film brought another element in your work, which was that of memory, the way in which memory sort of plays with especially space, and how each space brings with it a whole trove of memory. Can you talk about that, especially with your interest in architecture, which is so fundamental to, I think, just your conception of art?
5: I mean, also, Richard, it had to do with my vision of the Israeli cinema at that stage. We're talking about late 70s, early 80s. I thought it was very provincial and uh, really access on comedies. Now they make a big deal of all these comedies uh, called Burekas films. I think they're okay, but uh, uh, the cinema was kind of shy of dealing with uh, some parameters of this big project, which is fascinating, whatever you think, which is called Israel, you know. So they were kind of satisfied by making us all laugh and uh, making jokes and so on. I think that the project deserved better, stronger cinema which will engage with this project, you know. Uh, Because whatever I think about Israel, it is a very moving uh, story, it is a very... uh, fascinating, it's, it's really a very strong story, and deserves good literature, good cinema, good visual art, not just uh, going on the surface and playing, playing uh, jokes. So, uh, of course, what I was doing was kind of uh, uh, destabilizing to some, but this was my, my idea also, to destabilize this kind of likelihood of uh, dealing with it. Uh, and I'm still, I'm still doing it. You know. I'm still. It's still ongoing. Each time, putting another question. I, I think the the Israel, the Middle East calls for strong work of art. It is a dramatic story. It cannot be just taken lightly. And uh, and for me, the best artists anyway are those who have a critical attitude to the to the situation they live. They don't. Strong cultures don't need uh, simple uh, public relations, you know. this is weak cultures. Strong cultures can deal with uh, critical uh, presentations. Mm-hmm. And I think it is a strong culture, so I think it deserves it. You know. So, um, w- when you ask me about memory, um, I think that uh, the, the question of memory is that sometimes uh, when you look just at the present, you have no idea how to get out of it. So sometimes when you look at the past, it'll give you maybe a, a vision of how to resolve the future. Because just by sticking to the present, okay, you know. And uh, this is true politically, it's true artistically, and... Uh, and, um, and anyway, um, I'm a, I, I believe in ideas. Uh, you know, yesterday the screening of Ana Rabia. I also said that uh, I think that we are too much believing in money, uh, military force, and so on. For me, if we look carefully at the Jewish uh, experience, and we are in the context of a Jewish film festival, the Jews uh, survived because they believed in ideas. And they consider that ideas are strong, and they can sustain even physical harassment. You know, otherwise, they wouldn't be around here. So we cannot just neglect this line of thinking and just be seduced to just believe in how many jets we have, bombs, and money in the banks and so on. We have to take seriously ideas. And so uh, I think that the issue of talking about memory and looking at the previous layers which led to where we are today is part of this cinematic project in the large large sense. Mm
4: which is why the film so often plays with showing the present kind of encroaching on the past, which happens a lot in this film. Yeah. I so. Well, to bring up now, I guess going to the next clip I want to show, which is from Kippur, where in a certain way that memory becomes both national and very personal because I think it is obviously a very personal film since it deals very much with your own experience. Do you want to say something about that before we show the clip?
5: No, ov- obviously, Kippur is dealing with a uh, autobiographical uh, experience. I was uh, I was uh, 23 years old, and uh, I was already a student of architecture when the war broke, and uh, uh, this war was a very uh, central experience of uh, people of my generation, because it's it's a kind of a watershed. You know, you. Uh, even it is kind of strange that it is the only war which is very vivid even every year you know it is a strange experience because the 48 war which is an important war 48 war of independence is was very long so it doesn't have a date but it is important because the main parameter of the conflict uh, like the major palestinian refugee problem and displacement and uh, uh, the number of victims, and the the division of the territory and so on, start in 48. And we see the consequences until today, that it's not resolved. 56 War, which was the Suez Canal, it's kind of a bit colonial, it's kind kind of, you know, dubious. So people don't really think. 67 War, the Six Days War, it looks a bit kitsch. So people kind of. uh, uh, Then there is the Kippur War, and it's a date which, uh, in the religion, it's the most sacred uh, holiday. So it has a very clear date, and then the 82 uh, Lebanon War. People would like to forget it, and the consequent conflict as well. So the the Kippur War is a major. It's a major event. And still, it is the the fact that Israel was quite uh, near the point of being defeated uh, is still remembered, you know. So it it even says, let's say, this year uh, uh, Israel marked 40 years to the uh, Kippur War. It was a major, uh, I don't like to say celebration, but a major moment of memory and, and political analysis. Uh, Golda Meir was very much grilled in the memory now. Moshe Dayan as well, for for not accepting uh, some American propositions by Rogers and others of withdrawing partially from the Suez Canal to allow uh, negotiation uh, with uh, with Egypt. Uh, this is seen in perspective like a big political mistake, which uh, prepared the road to the Kippur War, etc., etc. So that. It's a very active uh, agent in the memory. So when finally, to go back Richard to what you asked, when finally I went and decided to do this film, and uh, the film Kippur was shown at the year 2000 in competition in Cannes. So the count is simple, the year 2000 is 27 years after 1973. In, In all accounts, this is a very long period to write a script, 27 years. Uh, so uh, people ask me, why did it take you so, so long? You know? So the truth is that uh, immediately after the war, I wanted to forget it. I didn't want to remember it. Because I was wounded and I, people around me were killed. And I basically didn't want to, to hear about it. And um, even so, even very close friends of mine didn't know that I was in this helicopter flying into Syria trying to save some pilots and so on. And um, only finally close to maybe not 27 but 25 years later, uh, finally I uh, decided to take the challenge and make this film. And uh, it was it was painful and uh, recently Haaretz uh, wrote a big article about this film that it's really the only one, strangely enough, which was made on the Kippur War. Um, I wanted to install the idea that the war is ca- a chaotic experience. It's not a structured experience, it is about rupture. it is about disorder, and this is the, the real experience. And I, I, uh, at the end of the film, I credited, you know, the screenplay was written by Marie-José, Sansem and myself, but I also uh, made a homage to Samuel Fuller, who participated in my some of my cinematic work who really pushed me and encouraged me to do the film and uh, I think that he had uh, he had something to do with the fact that the film exists
4: okay first question why one shot why one take i think it's effective you know that i think very much is
5: I, I think we're too much uh, poisoned by um, Eisenstein, montage and uh, kind of a uh, fast editing news and we have to install time, you know. When we install time, we give uh, some credibility to what we're talking about, you know. So it's, it's uh, some of my work, b- beyond everything we talked about, it's about the rhythm. About the way you can perceive an event and, and uh, this rhythm resist uh, demagogic uh, um, interpretation. You know, you install rhythm, you install a block, a temporal block uninterrupted. That's it.
4: When do you decide that this is going to be one shot? Did you know that day, okay, I'm going to shoot this whole thing just one shot? Or when does that decision come about? Is it during the screenplay or how does that happen? I mean, you know, some
5: things we we just have to be a bit lucky, you know. Yeah. So um, the day is uh, the, the day we shot this sequence. Uh, the, it was very foggy. The helicopters couldn't fly, and I got a call from my French producer who was in Tel Aviv. He said, "Come on, don't be hard-headed. Just cancel the shooting day." So I uh, went to my actors, and I, I, I owe this uh, scene also to my actors. And I said to them, listen, the, the, with the scene we are supposed to shoot with helicopters cannot be shot. So uh, what do you think? And they told me, no, we want to we want you. C- keep going. So this kind of um, uh, melancholic uh, light and uh, fog, and uh, I told them, you know, frankly, we didn't prepare it, so we don't have exchange uh, costumes, so it's it's going to be muddy and uh, wet and very unpleasant. So, are you sure you want to do it? They say, yeah, we want to do it. You know. So I I asked one of my assistants to to come and mark the area of mud that I want to shoot, so not everybody will step on it. And then. Um, You know, in this film, in general, I was working simultaneously with... uh, So I had the one guy who was communicating with the helicopters. Another one with the tanks. Another one with uh, explosions. It was quite a good uh, group of British uh, um, special effects unit that I brought from London. And I used to direct the actors, and uh, Vanessa knows it with uh, big loudspeakers, you know, like live. This is a nightmare to the sound editor, but I thought it's, it's uh, and I still think it's an easy way to communicate when you do these very complicated scenes. So you, you you really do it live when, when the scene is on. And um, I gave them instruction, like the idea of uh, the dance and so on, which you saw. And uh, Renato Berta I told him, you you will not, please don't cut it until I cut it, you know, just gone, whatever happens. So um, you need to compress all these uh, vectors, all these elements to to have this scene, you know.
4: And how many times did you actually do the scene? You
5: cannot do it too many times because it really involves a lot of energy of everybody. I think we did three takes. and that's it. And that was the day, you know, but uh, uh, everybody was wet and and muddy and uh, and uh, sound wise and so on. So it, it was a difficult uh, scene both for the actors and for the technical crew, you know.
4: And for you, where did the scene come from? Did it come from a memory, an experience, things you saw or... Where did that... It's really such an extraordinary, powerful moment, and it's really almost close in the center of the film. It kind of, for me, encapsulates the film in so many ways, and I'm wondering, really, the source of it for you.
5: No, I, I mean, it, it's, it's uh, really the experience of the... Um, you know, when you, we, you do the work we did, which is trying to bring b- people who were burning in the tanks to hospitals, and, and uh, the senselessness of war, Really, that's the, you know, the, you you keep doing it, keep uh, slipping out of your hand. And that it is a very primitive uh, ritual, you know, that maybe human being can go, go about, uh, be, move forward, and that they can uh, disagree. They just don't need to kill each time they, they disagree. You know, they can have other ways. And um, for me, the big uh, compliment was when the film was shown in Cannes, uh, the great Egyptian filmmaker Shaheen, with an open gesture, walked up the red carpet with his uh, actors publicly. And when he came back to Cairo, he was attacked by the uh, by the because he said to El Aram, the Egyptian paper, they asked him what is the film you like this year uh, in Cannes. He said Kippur by Amos Gitai, and uh, so he said they told him, are you a bit uh, Out of your mind. I mean, how can you like an Israeli film? You say, "I like it," you know, and I think it's a good piece. So, so the fact that people and Syrian filmmakers and and so on they could identify with it, for me, means that the film managed to transmit it beyond the divisions and the borders and the.
4: Can you talk a little bit about the sound work in the sequence? I especially love in the beginning when it almost seems that there's no sound and then suddenly it comes, you know, roaring back in.
5: I mean, it's obviously, you know, it's always difficult, especially for me, but I'm sure for everybody to to take it out of context of the film. So the, this scene comes after a kind of nightmare scene. And and uh, and it's true that sometimes in a war situation, you, you almost, uh, you don't hear, you know. And... Uh, that's why I think that some of the Hollywoodian war films are wrong, because they, they stress too much about the dialogue. in in a war in a real war situation, it's very noisy, it's wet, it's you really don't have a big reflective moment. you you are very functional. the, the verbal expression is functional. it's to give instructions. it's not to give big reflections. you know. Um, so um, I, I think that. Um, I wanted in a way to the sound to be kind of opaque in the in the beginning, and then we we can hear more and more about it from it
4: although by the end of the scene, the actors do come closer to us. would you say generally you have a bit of a reluctance to go that close to your actors? You tend to really like to film people full body, sort of you know basically having people you know plan American you know with people sort of full body in the frame or whatever or you don't really, you don't you usually don't cut into people close, or not really get that close to them.
5: No, I mean for me uh, and the entire, but but this is more general than than your question. The entire Middle East uh, situation uh, lacks perspective. So it means that we are all the time asked to to stay in a close up. I'm saying it uh, conceptually, you know, and I think that in order to understand it, you need to install perspective. So. Uh, in order not to to be too tilted in a way not uh, just to steer emotions in a cheap manner and so on, so you need to to install perspective and uh, um, and this is very difficult because you need to create distance in a situation which is in one hand very moving for you personally and you you want people to be to understand it a bit so so it is necessary to to not to be seduced just to to move all the way through and to to but to, to to understand it to situate it i think that's mentally maybe that's one of the most difficult things is really in each film uh, to to understand what is the point of view it, it's even before the tec- the technique the logistical uh, element Wh- what is the point of view Wh- what is your point of view that you want to portray it, you know and um, Obviously in Kippur or in Kadosh or in the film that some of you will see tomorrow night in arabia, this is the main issue what is the what is your point of view What do you want to not just in a narrative point of view but formally in Kippur, the decision was, and I spoke to Renato Berta, who did the cinematography, was to never leave the human face and uh, this was especially difficult in the scene that the helicopter is shot by the Syrian missile because the easiest technical thing is to have a little maquette model of a helicopter to shoot it from a distance and to explode it and i said no I d- even in this moment i don't want to lose the fa- the human face i want to see the human face is a kind of a mirror of this war so uh, this Translated into cinema is a big technological challenge. We had to bring a hydraulic system to get a real helicopter, and so on and so forth. Uh, but I thought this is also the strength of the film. We are all the time with these boys, these kind of seven figures squeezed in this uh, uh, sardine box of a helicopter, and we don't, we don't, uh, we don't, we never leave them.
4: Okay, so. Um, this film was still shot on 35 or yeah. did you move to yeah. digital? When was your first digital project?
5: I mean, you know, um, I shot as, as as far as I could I and mean, still even uh, Rosa Credit, which is still waiting to be shown in New York, uh, but the MoMA apparently loves it so maybe they will have a run of it, was shot still in, in 35. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the last moment. Anyway, now you cannot, even if you want, you cannot shoot in 35 and you have to shoot digital. Uh, Publicly, I disagreed with our friend Abbas Kirastami that sees great uh, political meanings in this uh, transition. You know, I'm more concrete. Uh, Let's say I didn't feel that moving from a a splicer editing uh, table to, to Avid or to Final Cut Pro will change. For me, it's really we're into content-oriented. The format can change, the the technology can change, but the uh, way of thinking is is the ma- is the main issue. It's not really about technology. I don't feel that technology liberates something or oppresses it something. It's really in our hands to say what we want to say or we d- what we don't want to say. Okay. So I, I think it's true. Uh, I feel I feel okay about this transition you know it's it's uh, apparently it's much easier to bring a little hard disk of a DCP of an arabia to new york than to set, to schlep this uh, uh 35 mm heavy prints
4: then but again could you have made an arabia on 35 mm
5: no i mean even hitchcock didn't manage <laughs> to, to so when <laughs> we speak about the rope as a sequence shot You're right i mean obviously you had it's, to cut it it's your cuts yeah yeah, yeah. So, um, no, but uh, I mean, I love uh, celluloid and so on, but not to the degree that I
4: don't think that's the main issue. Yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. But was the idea of doing a film in a sequence shot something you thought about for a while?
5: No, I mean, not really uh, before. I mean, I did, the, you know, the episode I did in the 9-11 mm-hmm. uh, collective film with Sean Penn did the piece and Ken right. Lodge and so on. Uh, I did the sequence shot on 35 still, mm-hmm. so I was limited to 11 minutes. Um, I thought this was really right for An Arabia, you know.
4: I spoke before about space and movement, and then added memory. I think I would add. So this film, something that this film, I think, very much brings to the fore another term, which would be, I think, narrative or story. This seems to be a film where people are kind of obsessed about telling stories. I mean, the reporter, the woman we see, is trying to find out the story of An and everyone keeps telling her stories, too. That seems to be another aspect of that. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of the film?
5: I mean, when we wrote it, uh, originally, Anna Rabia herself was a cer- central figure. Uh, this was um, uh, uh, a story carried by the Agence France-Presse, the French uh, news agency, reporting about a woman in the uh, Arab village of Um el-Fahem, that when she went to see her doctor and uh, she told him that she actually was born in Auschwitz. And that's the whole interest in this uh, figure, and uh, we decided that would be the center of the story. But finally, when we got to making it, we decided that she will not exist anymore. <laughs> so that's why it's actually all the, uh, the the discussion is around this this figure. Um, but it's really about uh, about memory, about the kind of juxtaposition. Um, Let's say, I I was thinking when I was doing it about a Joyce, you know, a site, this uh, place that you have seen some minutes of it, a number of figures telling the biographies in a fragmented fragmented manner. And this juxtaposition tell us about uh, a place, a moment in time in history and so on.
4: Is it about a place where there are all these I don't want to call them competing, but coexisting stories. That sort of a place that's made up of all these stories which together make up a story or something like that. Yeah,
5: and also to avoid the angelism of the Middle East again, you know, because the rivalry uh, forces, each one wants to, us to believe that he is angelic and the other one are, are devils or bastards. The truth is that they are both uh, angels and bastards, all of them, and uh, so the division is not so simple. So It's really a collection of contradictions. You
4: You mentioned yesterday, actually, in the screening, during the Q&A, that I think you did seven takes. You did the entire film seven times. I'm wondering how much changed. I'm wondering how often, say, the camera position or the position of the actors, how much evolved or changed during the time of, of the shooting?
5: No, it, it did change. The, the problem, the, I mean, the complicated issue about this kind of shot is the choreography. You know, how, how do you move the actors? How do you place the text? How does the camera move relatively to the movement of the actors? Uh, th- this is the choreography, so we had to build, it brought me back to architecture. I had to build a maquette of the site, uh, model, and actually show the cameraman and situate the actors and simulate it on this model and uh, then see how the camera will turn how will the actor uh, the, the, in this one i would also great make a homage to the the two women who worked as assistant directors because we were all because the, the camera is all over the place so we were hiding in a closed room and they were really giving the cues to the actors and so on and they did a terrific job you know the the we have very few photos because um, the camera crew and the sound crew, you know, the sound crew with their boom with the sticks chased away the the stills camera <laughs> cameraman because they they were afraid he would get into the frame, so nobody could walk on the set. This was a complicated uh, issue.
4: Did they have like uh, wireless mics or something like that, or something to tell the cameraman now go left, now go right, or? How do they it's do? It's
5: more. I mean, again, what I do is is when we rehearse it, I, I put loudspeakers, you know, and I speak to. I watch the monitor, and I give them instructions live. Uh, then we rehearse it several times. The movement. It's not a rehearsal that you can rehearse in a in a closed room okay. because you need to rehearse the the essential thing is the movement, is the choreography. It's not just the text. The text, I, I uh, suppose, when I start this exercise, the actors should know it by heart, so I'm not even dealing with it. Um, then in the casting, you know, Yusuf Abu Varda, w- with, with whom I worked quite a lot, he played with me in Kadosh, in Kedma, He he's a great actor, and he, he was carrying it, and, and Yuval Sharf who is the journalist, she's leading us through this kind of meandering uh, so, but, but this was a, 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 great, uh, a great challenge. Yeah. Okay.
4: okay, we have a few minutes for some questions, so uh, let's open it up. Yes, sir. Questions about your choice of, of camera movement. How do you choose exactly when to get close, when to stay back, all those issues?
5: I mean, like in any creative process, some of the decisions are intuitive. They're not uh, analytical, you know. So, like I don't try to make even justifications, I just say this is the way, you know. So, you have to take a position and then sometimes you have to modify your position, taking into account uh, uh, technology and and maybe performance and so on, but you you start by taking a, a decision and then modify it. So, it means that you don't analyze it theoretically and then take a decision.
4: The question is, you know, how when you make a film that, you know, takes, for example, perhaps controversial positions, how do you separate out perhaps maybe the implications of what you're saying from uh, the political effect it will have, especially perhaps outside where some, some perhaps positions you have might be taken by some people in ways that, you know, will be either critical or taken to uh, have critiques of Israel that perhaps you don't mean to to make or or whatever?
5: I mean, it's not my job, you know. I I make only films, you know. And I like to assume that my public is intelligent. And if they they choose not to be intelligent, that's their problem, you know. So uh, I think that many of the images I make are difficult to be Exploited in a direct way, you know So when I want to be critical, I am critical and when I want to measure it I do like like what I said about the last shot of Field Diary, you know uh, so uh, You know, uh, I, th- I think we when we do a, a artistic act we can we have to confine it to what we do it's a concrete uh, confinement and I uh, and, the, and basically, that's it. Uh, I don't think that you can uh, um, reduce all the critique uh, on Israel to, to sheer anti-Semitism. You know, there are some critique which is relevant and should be uh, criticized, you know. Israel should be criticized on some of his actions. And I don't even think it's bad for Israel to be criticized on some of the actions. Uh, because the Israel that I like uh, should take care not to do certain things. So I, I think it's even patri- patriotic. Uh, in the in the in the patrie that I choose to defend, yeah. uh, which is not necess- uh, necessarily the what they would what they what others will choose, but uh, I feel very comfortable with it.
4: Do you have thoughts about how, how different is the experience for an audience seeing long extended takes which you often favor as opposed to seeing a lot of rapid cuts or that, again, you, one often finds in other types of films?
5: Uh, no, I think that, that. I think that, that um, you know, I, I said it several times. For me, the best films, st- for me as a spectator, the best films start when the screening is over. Meaning, that we were sitting, we were we were challenged by this uh, director, uh, maybe we didn't figure out it completely, and then we go and our mind will meander, and we will try to uh, interpret it. And this is the relation I like with my own de- audience. I like audience which is invested in interpretation. So, um, um, I think that these firms call for this kind of attitude. The fact that the market is flooded by other products, okay, you know, I'm not uh, obviously going, not going to change it. I don't have the power to change it. I don't have the desire to be integrated to it and so on. So as I said, I, I think we should be modest about uh, what we can do to transform tendencies, but we should also make an effort to do it at the same time. So it's a kind of ambiguous position. Uh, we don't need to be, uh, to to modify our way of functioning to to conform to some very powerful aggressive tendencies of uh, showing the entire Middle East in a very exotic, uh, uh, fast editing, uh, very often manipulated to this side or to to the other. And that's it, you know, and then we go and then there is the other thing, so we, it's, it's a very long-term, obviously this kind of work is not transforming the reality instantaneously, it's a long-term uh, procedure. It's, uh, but as I said, I'm a believer in ideas and I think they're not as weak as we try to think and people are not all as stupid as we try to assume. And so let's do our work in a stable manner and that's it. You know? And then we go and obviously it will end at some point.
4: The questions? What do you find the most promising developments in the cinema of cinemas of Israel and Palestine today? I mean, uh,
5: as I said, and I want to reserve it because I didn't see some of the, what you're talking about, and I'm not such a, a great consumer of cinema myself, you know, so I'm not uh, the, the good referee uh, of that. I also think that uh, I don't want film critics to be unemployed, you know, so, so, they should make this judgment. Uh, so I, I don't see enough, but it's not only about Israel or Palestinian cinema, I, do, I don't see enough daring projects formally. I see a lot of discussion about content, about politics, about this and that, uh, and, and about the excitement of the polemics of that, but I don't see a, a sufficient amount of a next generation which will challenge the, uh, some of Our generation and will go forward. I don't see enough of it but I think it's you know it you need uh, to to do the work that we did not just me but my colleague also in other countries you need to do to have uh, strong personalities uh, uh, working consistently and I think that I'm uh, very proud to have grown in a year that in years that Israel didn't have television and I think this helped uh, my vision until the age of 17. Ben Gurion hated television, and so I was saved from being uh, over, over, uh, uh, and and so your your imagination was not so much formed by this by the television image, you know, and um, so and that's why I think that uh, you know sometimes when I when I spoke and I did master classes with Anna Arabia in many countries in Brazil in India in, and so on. So uh, people ask me what what is your good advice for for young filmmakers?" I said to them, "Go and learn architecture you know <laughs> because uh, I think we need we need another structure, and we need to have the exercise of transposing one discipline into another, and cinema needs this new blood which will come from not just from film schools but from uh, people who are thinking they can learn uh, philosophy, aesthetics, architecture, whatever. And, and bring, bring another way of looking into cinema.
4: A lot of your work in recent years has actually been more work in museums and galleries and, and things like that. Yeah,
5: no, because the, you know the, 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 I think that the, part of the issues that a lot of filmmakers that I respect are confronting is that the commercial cycles you, you know, I remember that Bernardo Bertolucci told me that uh, his father... Who was a poet, saw in Parma, which is a relatively small Italian town, uh, Jean d'Arc by Dreyer, by Dreyer uh, four months after it was released in, in Denmark. So it means that the that, uh, circulation of works, opposite to what we think, was actually more. These kind of works, which today to see a Dreyer film, you have to wait. Uh, 20 years in a remote Cinematheque, was actually in normal cinemas and so on. When Pausolini films were released in Italy, they were shown in Sicily next to American blockbusters, but in many cinemas. So I think that the problem is really the exposition of works which go out of the convention, and how do you expose it to the public, you know? Because cinemas really tend to, to to think more and more narrowly and really work on the blockbusters and obviously only the film which work in the first weekend will make it, etc., etc., etc. So um, I think that uh, all of us, I mean I'm not the only one, but uh, some other good uh, filmmakers look for venues where we, we can show and have uh, exchange with the publics. And obviously when I showed my films in the, the Pompidou Center, Uh, in Paris, or or here at the MoMA, or with Richard here at the Lincoln Center. And um, now I will show it in the Rena Sofia in in Spain and so on. So these are interesting venues where you have a sophisticated audience. I mean, when you walk to the MoMA, which is showing now, exhibition as Aviva mentioned about, uh, one dining room that my father designed in a kibbutz. Uh, just now, it's still three days. I gave to the MOMA eighteen drawings of the work of my father, was a Bauhaus architect uh, who designed a dining room in a kibbutz. So when you go walk to the mama you see the mass of people who, who go to see works So so it is a, a potentially an interesting public, and uh, which is a bit sheltered from the, this kind of. Uh, uh, commercial pr- uh, pressures and, and is interested in the dialogue. So. Um, thanks so much.
4: Thank it a you. Pleasure, Thank you. To have pleasure you. Thank you very much.
6: <laughs> the Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org. F I L M L I N C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.